are back <laughs> we, we oh hold on i have something for you you ready you ready okay you ready for it you ready okay for it? <laughs> you've got to send me that audio i'm so gonna make a ringtone for you out of that i'm not kidding <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> I do. I just love that so much. <laughs> there is something wrong with you. I love you, okay. but there's something wrong with you. <laughs> how can you not? How can you not love that? That is just. That is just absolutely fantastic. I just oh love that. My gosh. Oh my gosh. I could just hear I could just listen to that over and over and over again. Yep. <sighs> Something wrong with you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Welcome but that's everybody. Okay. <laughs> Welcome everybody to another episode, another fun-filled episode of the Fusion Underground. This is uh, what is this? Season two, episode three now, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Episode three of season two of the Fusion Underground. Here at Fusion Underground, we try to make sense of the world by having principled dis discussions about such topics as entertainment, current events, politics, and culture. Our mission is to educate people to become critical thinkers so they can live more empowered and happier lives. As always, I'm your host, Manuel Ramirez, and I'm joined in the virtual studio with my co-host, the lovely Jason Moret. How are you doing, brother? I'm good, brother. I'm good. You? I'm not too bad, not too shabby, not too shabby. So, so today on the Fusion Underground, you know, last week we talked about the three different branches of government, and this week what we thought we would do is we would talk about the number one virus sweeping the world or that has swept the world. No, we're not talking about COVID. We're talking about dun 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 communism. Yay, communism! We're going to be talking about that today. Communism <clears throat> slash socialism. You know, it's all one and the same. Yeah. For what, it's, yeah. for what it's worth. As always, you can find all of our stuff at thefusionunderground.net. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash AZ Fusion Underground. We have a YouTube channel just to a search for Fusion Underground. Um, and we, you can find us on Twitter at the FU Brothers. And you can find all of our podcasts wherever podcasts are sold but also off of Anchor, Breaker, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. So we're on there as well. You can catch those RSS feeds off of our website, fusionunderground.net. And as always, you can send us hate mail at contact at fusionunderground.net. So 
having said all of that, before we get into before we get into the uh, you know the actual show in and of itself, <clears throat> you know that that whole lovely thing. Um, I don't have a I don't have a palate cleanser for you. No palate cleanser. I do not have a palate cleanser for you. No, I do not. But I do have something that I thought would be of interest to you and our listeners. This okay. has to deal with just a slight. We're not going to talk. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it. So don't worry. But this this just came out today, as a matter of fact. This was published today at thegatewaypundit.com. Uh, the title of the article is More Fraud in Capitals, all caps. Arizona counts any death within 60 days of positive COVID test as a COVID death. That is right. Dr. Phil Kirpin reports overnight that the state of Arizona is reporting COVID deaths for anyone who was found positive with COVID in a test within 60 days of that test, of that death. That's huge. Well, <clears throat> it's, it's huge that it's, that it's um, being admitted, I guess. We've already known that that's been going on. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very shocked that they actually put a, a timestamp or a date stamp on that. Yeah. Um, my uh, belief up to this point was that anyone within six months who had been tested positive for COVID was actually being marked as a COVID test regardless whether it was by motor vehicle accident, um, cardiac issue, or falling off your roof and breaking your neck. So the fact that they came out and said it was 60 days is kind of interesting. So I guess if you're going to admit something, it means at least put a timestamp on it so it doesn't sound as bad yeah I, I, yeah this just kind of goes it just supports everything that i've been feeling about covid the fact that it's just uh, just a bunch of a bunch of bs in terms of the reaction to it again this is not to say that people are aren't legitimately dying from it and there you know there are people that are and we've said this over and over again that there are people that do have uh, certain comorbidities, right? That um, comorbidities blah, uh, that really do affect their ability to survive this in this particular illness. But, but you know, keep in mind that here are some of the things that we have learned since March. Now, imagine, if you will, what what our our country, what the world would look like if we knew this back in March. Okay. Up to 80% of the population we have found has a natural resistance to the virus. Up to 80% of the population. This is coming out now in studies. And I think this is, you know, some of the hypotheses around these are, uh, around this claim is that, well, humans have been dealing with coronaviruses for hundreds of years. Not necessarily this novel one, this COVID-19, but we do, we do battle uh, year in and year out, uh, coronaviruses, and our body has a pretty good method to defend itself against that. Uh, this is why, in many cases, it presents people present with very low uh, symptoms or little to no symptoms, um, and many people are just simply asymptomatic. But we've also what we've also um, been doing now. Imagine again if we knew this back in March, 
that we'd overcount deaths by up to 40 to 50%. And the article, the headline that I read just a few minutes ago where Arizona is basically over-reporting deaths, um, we're, we're overcounting the deaths for COVID-19 by up to 40 to 50%. And kids under 18 would have approximately 100 hospitalizations per 1 million. That means it's at about a 0.01% hospitalization rate for kids under the age of 18. And that if you're less than 65 years of age, the survival rate is approximately 99.9%. That is the survival rate if you're under 65. Correct. Uh, where, where, would, where would we be right now if we knew that? And even though we do know this, as of August 22nd, 2020, we do know all of these things. We are still freaking out about this whole thing. Well, we're, we're <laughs> we know all these things. However, we're, we're being told that, well, that that's, that's not exactly true. That's a false narrative. That's this. And, and it's being swept under the rug right now because if we were to acknowledge that this is as dangerous as flu or pneumonia, then we would get back to normal life and we wouldn't be able to utilize it for other gains. And I'm sorry, but it is being politicized. Now, I'm not saying that the virus is not real, that there is not an inherent danger to a specific group of individuals because it is. Yeah, it's real. we've agreed. It we've does agreed exist. But our reaction to it is absolutely disproportionate to what we're looking at. And that's not an opinion. That's, that's just the facts. Yeah. And, uh, you know, do I think that this was a political um, disease? No. But is the disease being utilized for political reasons? Yes, and I'm not talking about just the traditional politics. I'm even in um, the uh, working class. They're using this virus to get from the fear and the reaction. Um, and I'm not picking on anybody, but I know we've picked on teachers as an example. They are utilizing this disease process to gain from it that's politicizing an actual threat, an actual situation. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think it's just going to continue. I mean, Joe Biden came out and said that if he's elected, that he will issue the very first thing that he will do when he hits office is he will issue a nationwide mask mandate. Uh, and I don't even want to get into that right now. Well, we're going to kind of get into that when we talk about communism. I was going to say that's, yeah, would that, that probably will come up. So something on my lens there on my camera <laughs> <laughs> you stuck your thumb on the camera i feel like i just got blinded and poked in the eye it was kind of creepy <laughs> i want to share something with you so um i've i've kind of mentioned this before how uh how leftists have been infiltrating into things like uh, movies and comic books and video games for a while now and it continues to get extremely perverse and one of the things that many leftists, um, you know, complain about all the time. And I like smudged it. I like. I'm like. Is that better? I think that's. <laughs> feels like I rubbed your eye, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Now you rub my cornea. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah you're 
Um, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things that, that uh, you know, leftists always want is they say, well, we need to have equality, right? We hear that all the time. It's all about equality. Sure. Yep. Uh, women want equality. Um, uh, the, the, you know, the, the umpteen bajillion genders want equality. The different races want equality and all that. So I wanted to share this little, uh, uh, this little tidbit with you because I think it's hysterically funny. Uh, leftists have been, um, they've been, in, you know, they've integrated themselves into Star Wars. We've seen that with the last Star Wars film. But look at this. <clears throat> now, this is the result of something that has recently happened in the Star Wars comic books. I've talked about how leftists have been infiltrating themselves into comic books now for a while. In w one of the latest Star Wars comic books, Boba Fett, you can see him, this couple of these panels right up here in the upper left-hand corner. I know you can't read that at all, and that, that's, that's fine. Uh, but this, these are two panels from inside the comic book. And Boba Fett, we all know who Boba Fett is. He is the notorious sure. bounty hunter from the original Star Wars films. He's the one who captured Han Solo, right? Well, <clears throat> the fandom has really made Boba Fett into this very iconic, um, scary, very skilled, highly skilled assassin, as well as bounty hunter. And, and so his, his stature has really grown in the years since Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi uh, in the extended universe in comics and in books. But in this latest comic book issue, Boba Fett actually kills this, uh, he kills a woman. Yeah. Okay. And he kills a woman. And the social justice warriors have lost their minds. Here's this one. I hope the authors of this comic get, get fired. New Boba Fett comic shows him violently killing a queer walk, I mean, a woman of color, and another character torturing a pregnant woman. Oh, yep, yep. Basically, they published torture porn for incels in a Star Wars comic. So tired of consuming Star Wars stories that make me feel like the men creating them hate me, hate women, wasn't planning to start the day with a good long cry about Star Wars, but here we are again. Somebody's actually crying over Star Wars? Are you kidding me? If you're crying over Star Wars, you need to seek psychological help. Star Wars fan for over 35 years, and I'm done. I'll stick to fanfic from now on. I won't spend a single penny on your misogynistic crap. F-U-D-L-F. Hashtag Star Wars hates women. This has never been new. The problem with allowing 99% men to create things in your fandom is blatant misogyny and homophobia and racism. Now, you know what really pisses me off about all this crap? It's what I said before I actually I started love reading these tweets. It's the fact that the SJWs, that they come out of the woodwork like, like hormigas, and what, they, what do they want? They want equality in all things. They want to be equal. I can't, you know, they're not, they're, they're pounding the streets right now in, in, in Denver and Portland calling for equality. They want equality. And yet here they get some of that equality rather than, you know, it would have been very stereotypical for Boba Fett to go after a man and kill a man and hunt down a man in the Star Wars universe. So let's shake it up a little bit and let's have Boba Fett go and hunt down a woman and the social justice warriors cannot deal with it. 
They cannot deal with it. I don't know who's thought it would, who thought it would be okay for a Boba Fett comic that shows violence against women. That's disgusting on so many levels. This just, this tribe just goes on and on and on. And I just, I hate these people. I just can't stand them. I, <laughs> and this, this is why, this is another reason why I'm not on Twitter. Cause I mean, seriously, let's be honest. Could you imagine me poking the bear with these people? Oh my gosh. I, I'd probably get kicked off of Twitter or wherever these are within a matter of 24 hours. Tops. Because you're right. I mean, it, you're talking about you want equality? Well, then guess what? You're going to be treated just like a man, regardless. So you get treated the same. So, yeah, you're talking about a bounty hunter. Bubba Fett, newsflash, was not a good dude. He's a villain. He really wasn't. He was a, he's a villain. I, maybe more of an, not an anti-hero, but I mean, uh, he's a villain. He's it's a villain. Just, so yeah, he's going to, he's going to kill you regardless of kill or regardless of race, creed, color, credo, sex, <clears throat> religious orientation, self-identification or whatever else. Guess what? That quality in its truest form. Shut your pie hole. You got what you asked for, and now you can't handle it. I hope you don't get what you're screaming for later on, and Lucy and I are going to talk a little bit about that tonight. I am muted. I, I muted myself, and I forgot that I was muted. But I learned a little. I learned a new trick. Aha! I, here I learned a new trick that if you're oh. muted, if you're muted and you hold the space bar down, that unmutes you so that you can talk. And then when you release the space bar, it goes. It goes back. Well, yeah, but you can just hit the space bar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. It's, it's a... Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was talking about. Hey. Sorry, I, I guess I forgot to share that with you. When we first <laughs> started this. doing this. <laughs> I never knew this. I just now learned about it. Well, I learned about it earlier this week. I was like, huh, learn something new every day. Um, Disclaimer for all of our listeners again that we are super high tech <laughs> here at the Fusion Underground and we Very. treat ourselves as professionals in everything we do. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're rocking in the tech here. <laughs> hey. So have you been paying attention, maybe you have not, since uh, you're a normal human being who works for a living, uh, have you been paying attention to the craziness that has been happening with regard to Netflix over the last week? Uh, no, not really. Yeah, I didn't think so. So Netflix announced earlier this week that they were going, they are going to start streaming a movie coming up in a few weeks called Cuties. Oh, I did hear about this. This was the uh, the pedophilia issue. Well, so oh, okay. So, here, so different take on it. Go ahead. Here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. All right, I have. I, of course, I have not seen the movie. The movie's not out on Netflix yet. Um, the the, the problem the the problem is that. <clears throat> Uh, how do I explain that? Okay, so the issue was Netflix said, hey, you know what? 
we're going to release this upcoming film and you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And this movie, uh, it's called Cuties. And it's basically about a group of 11 year old girls who participate in some dance contests. And um, they are, you know, people went ape nuts because the, the film apparently sexualizes young girls. Um, and, and so, yeah, this created a tremendous uh, out, outburst on, on social media. Let, let me, but here's, you know, here's the thing. The, the artwork for the, the movie on Netflix, it's pretty risque, okay? So Netflix redid the picture for this show or this movie called cuties and posted it up there and people just went nuts over it. They just in a negative way, right? They just exploded on, on, on Netflix. Um, people were claiming that this was, this is, you know, a this was a movie made for pedoph pedophiles and all this kind of stuff. The movie did uh, debut at Cannes, the Cannes film festival in France. Um, and it won a bunch of awards. Uh, of course, part of the reason why people were freaking out earlier this week is because the movie is rated mature. So now it becomes, well, it's a movie about 11 year old girls, but it's rated mature. So it must, so therefore by default, it's not for other children. So who is it for? Um, let me just show you the differences between, so I watched, I went out there and I thought, let me, I'm gonna watch the preview and, and right. see what the preview looks like. From the preview alone, now again, I haven't seen the movie, but from the preview alone, I don't get the whole sexualized vibe from the movie at all. To me, it, it comes across as, as a group of girls who, uh, like one main character, one of the main, and it's, it's not a documentary. This is a, this is a fictionalized story, but I think it's based on real dance competitions of young girls because those do exist. So one young girl, she sees these, she stumbles across these other girls who are dancing and practicing and she kind of falls in love with the idea and she wants to, she befriends them and she says, well, I want to dance. It's, it's everything I want to do, right? And her family uh, sees it, sees dancing as a very negative thing, something that is, you know, um, it, it's satanic or whatever. The devil is, you know, it's like Footloose all over again. Okay, but with 11 year old right. girls this time. <clears throat> So when I watched the preview for it, I didn't get any of the sexualization at all. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel any of that from watching the preview. But take a look at the difference between um, between the uh, the um, the image that was sold at Cannes, the original image. So the original image is on the left. This is the original poster for Can. The image on the right is what Netflix created for the film. And this is pretty bad. When you're looking at this, it's like, what the, what are you, what the hell, Netflix? What are you doing? But when you compare right. that to what's happening over on the left, what the original movies cre movie creators uh, produced for this film, it's a completely different vibe. So yeah. part, of me, part of me feels that Netflix is just going out, going out there to be provocative in an attempt to be provocative. 
Well, and maybe they are, maybe they aren't. On the other hand, I look at the the image that you've got shown up here on the right. It's definitely, you know, obviously a stage and we've got matching outfits and blah, blah, blah. blah. I, that doesn't look like anything I wouldn't see on um, American Idol. Sure. You mean I this mean, one that's, here? Yes. The one on the right? Yeah. The one on the right? Yeah. The, 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 the well, reason, I have issue with the one on the right. And the reason why I do is because they're little girls. If they were, if they were and, adults, I wouldn't, it wouldn't bother. Yes. And, and I agree with you. However, I will say this and I am, I don't know anything about this and I'm not defending anybody's position. It's an outside observation. Um, as a society, we have over-sexualized even uh, dance and music over the last 10 to 15 years. I think you could even agree with that um, sure. to a point now where I mean, this, it's not even shocking to me right now because this is almost norm. Now, it's, it's disturbing to me because it always has been, but we've been kind of portraying sex cells for a long time, um, especially in the music um, and pop industry, if you will. So, I mean, that looks like, like I said, that, that looks like something I could see on... Uh, um, American Idol or America's Got Talent or something of that nature. Now, I can just as easily sit in my living room on my couch and see that and go, what the hell is wrong with parents? Why would you let your daughter, you know, go out on stage looking, acting, and or dressing and behaving that way? And I just go, man, some parents these days, I don't get it. On the flip side, I look at the other, the, the one on the left, and you've got girls wearing their underwear on the outside of their clothes. That's, that bothers me almost just as bad. Yeah, and I can I can see that, and I can see why you would feel that way. Um, but so what? They're on they're on the other side of uh, the outside of their clothes, and the the picture in no way sexualizes them. At least I don't believe it does. Um, no, I can I I understand that to a point, absolutely. You know, they're, they're not being sexualized. They're obviously they got done shopping. It looks like they just got done shopping, and they're running down the street, and they're all excited. Look at the stuff that we have, right? Uh, but the one on the right is is a bit more shocking because I would, if, if these were the fly girls from the 1990s in living color, whatever, I, you know, we've seen that. Um, what bothers me is, and what bothered a lot of people is the fact that they're 11. But again, I think this is a, this is a, I think this is Netflix being overly provocative in an attempt to win viewers. Because quite honestly, if I'm sitting at home and I'm looking for something to watch on Netflix, and I see four girls, four little girls like this on a, on the street after shopping. I'm I'm not watching it. Of course, I'm not watching this. But as an adult, I'm not watching it. To me, this seems just the <laughs> image alone seems like well, it's a it's a it's a movie for young girls, right? And I would just continue. Yeah, to, it's a tweens movie. Yeah, it, a tweens movie, and I'm just going to keep on going, right? If this came across right. my Netflix feed or what's popular on Netflix or something. You know, I'm just going to see that. I'm just going to keep on moving because that does not look interesting to me. I think what they were trying to do, I think what Netflix is trying to do is they were trying to take this image on the one on the left and they were trying to create something that would get American viewers to pause and go, what the hell is this? And that's how, and I think they came up with the image on the right. And unfortunately for Netflix, it completely backfired on them. Right. And, and I, I right. don't think the content of the movie, now I could be wrong because I haven't watched it, just going off of the preview, but I don't think the content of the film 
represents the image on the right. I think the content of the film represents the image on the left, based on what I saw in the movie. I don't know. We'll have to find out. I think I think Cuties drops later uh, or in September. Yeah, and and I I heard some of the controversy actually about that, and and I think. I, more than the imagery that you're showing, I think the biggest controversy that that blew up about it is it was actually asked directly, interviewed about um, the pedophilia issue, and said, you know, do you support or condone pedophilia? And I guess Netflix was kind of dodging the question. So I think that. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, here it is, right? So here's what, so somebody posted this on, on social media. They contacted customer service and said, and they said, how does a movie sexualizing children get approved? Who signed off on this? Netflix, Netflix said, responded with this. Netflix said, we understand that not all stories may appeal to all our viewers, which is why we always invest in a diverse range of content from all over the world. We also provide ratings, synopses, trailers, and controls to help our members make the right viewing choices for themselves and their family. To which, um, oh, sorry, to which the, uh, the person replied, do you support pedophilia? A simple yes or no will suffice. Okay, that was the response back from this individual. To which Netflix, in their, or at least this customer service rep, uh, not to their credit, responded, we cannot really comment on that, but while we believe in creative freedom, at Netflix, we respect all religions and their cultures, tra cultures traditions, and values. <laughs> this got yeah. Netflix into a lot that's, of trouble. Right, right. That And that's where I think, it, from what I understand, that's where the controversy really lies. It's They could have just said, absolutely not. That's bad. That's yeah. bad. We don't we don't agree with that, and moved on. And and they didn't have to say anything else and yeah. just left it alone. But yeah, yeah, oh, crazy, well. crazy, crazy, crazy. Well, and unfortunately, there therein lies the other issue. We we put people into a corner where they have to be overtly <laughs> correct or try to be so much that they can't answer simple yes or no questions even to their defense, and it's, it's unfortunate, but. I just had to inject some humor back into there. Okay, cool. <laughs> God. Starting to get a little uh, heavy there. <laughs> you know how many goose I have on my phone ready at my disposal I don't, I don't think you want to really go down this road with me sir <laughs> uh, okay well you know we'll see all right we'll, we'll, we'll see what you got just remember <laughs> you wanted this <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right well let's get into uh let's get into our topic here um all right let's do it so so for everybody listening you know one of the things that we wanted to do this for season two is we wanted to talk about uh things that are happening in the media and of course we are going um like gangbusters for um for the general election 
and um, and, and you know, I wanted people to to start paying attention to what's happening in politics, uh, and at least thinking about different things that are happening in politics. And right now, we've got um, as we're recording this, as we are recording this, there are riots happening across the country. There's a riot going on in Portland for eighty some days now. It's the eighty plus I don't know how many days consecutive nights that it's been. Remember, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but um, but there were a lot of people that were saying, hey, if you get rid of the federal agents that showed up, you know, Trump stormtroopers, as some people were calling them, if you get rid of them, if you send them away, then the violence in Portland will stop. Well, they left several weeks ago and the violence is still underway. Uh, now the violence has moved on to Denver, Colorado. So as right before we started recording tonight, I was on social media and there was a lot of new video being posted from people in Denver, Colorado. And one of the police departments in downtown Denver has been surrounded by Antifa and BLM uh, rioters. Uh, they're launching fireworks and all kinds of other stuff at the police department. Uh, they're also going down, I guess there's like a, a restaurant row or some like central area within Denver, Colorado, where there are a lot of restaurants in the city and riders were going down that those sections of streets and they're bashing out all of the windows of all of the, um, the businesses along that particular area in that particular area so this is happening this is going on right now and uh, one of the things that we have to that i think a lot of people need to recognize is that these groups antifa and black lives matter they are far left organizations they're far left Marxist organizations. In fact, many of the writers display things like Che Guevara t-shirts or they're displaying hammer and sickle and um, on, you know, whether it's on their shields or their, you know, the clothing and things of that nature. And even the demands that they're calling for, they're calling for the abolition of, of private property, for example. And this is something that Marx, that Karl Marx wrote about, he wanted a, a, a society that abolished private property. So these organizations, they are far left Marxist organizations. And, and so this is something that is happening in the United States and people need to be aware. You know, there are some people that they don't really understand what that means. What does it mean to be a Marxist? Or what, what's so bad about socialism and communism anyway? So why shouldn't we, uh, why shouldn't we do that or go that route? And so I wanted to have a conversation where we talk about some of these things and, and talk about why these things are bad. Okay. I'm willing to talk about communism. Um, and, and, you know, in thinking about this a little bit, I, I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm not for communism, but I am for socialism or democratic socialism. I'm like, well, then you're an idiot. Uh, because you don't understand that the goal of socialism is communism. Uh, Karl Marx has stated that uh, repeatedly. So did um, uh, that was the goal in in Russia. Uh, that's what was in Germany. That's it's everywhere where communism has been. Socialism was the catalyst to get them there. Um, and keep in mind, you know. Black Lives Matter, and I'm not picking on this one organization in particular, but most of these are Marxist, and that's not an opinion. That's fact. Uh, Patrice Coulors, or Coulors? Coulors. 
C-U-L-L-O-R-S, was actually founded. She's a co-founder of uh, BLM, who was quoted saying that we are trained Marxists and we are super versed on ideological theories and many of them. And they that's their goal. Um, Antifa is Antifa is nothing new. Uh, it's it was actually started in 1923, or excuse me, 32. Pardon me, pardon me. Um, it was a Stalinist-backed uh, communism in Germany. It was a group which was formed specifically to violently clash with the police, um, to terrorize the public, and to physically assault political enemies in the streets. Uh, the only difference between them and now is their original name was Antifasciste Action. But the banner is still the same. The credo is still the same. If you look at uh, what they're promoting, what they're doing right now, these riots, that's what it is. I mean, they're, they are violently clashing with anyone and anything they see as an opponent, and it is purely to um, promote violence to emphasize the class struggles that Karl Marx emphasized so highly, which is the, the basis for Marxism, and, and really get people to where they can question what they believe or what they know. Well, and you're right. So here's, here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of set the stage and talk about 10 characteristics of communism to, so that people are on board, because I didn't want to go off the cuff and just start um, bashing on communism. I did want to have, I do want to have a, um, you know, principled discussion about what it is. And so that we can look at what communism actually means. And, and when people say, well, this is a communist organization, uh, these are things that you need to understand that they're, they're striving for. Uh, and there are a lot of people that are striving for this. If you go on, on Twitter right now and you look at uh, people's profiles, um, there's a movement where, Communists and socialists are putting little roses, you know, you can do the little uh, emoticons and they're putting roses in their profile pictures or next to their profile pictures to denote that they are in favor of socialism and, and communism. So, you know, they're wearing this openly uh, on their sleeve. But here, here are 10 characteristics of communism. So let's talk about these. Number one is the, uh, and, and these characteristics, these come from the Communist Manifesto. So Karl right. Marx and his co-author Friedrich Engels, they wrote about these 10 points. Um, and the Communist Manifesto is not long. It's like, what, 50 pages or something like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a fairly short document. Yeah, I would encourage anybody to go out there and at least read it uh, because you should be familiar with this. But these are the 10 main points that these two guys outlined in their Communist Manifesto. One is the abolition of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. So that, that, is, that is really interesting. We're going to get into this one, I think, because this is really the key. This is really the crux. They don't want to have, communists do not want to have any private property, which means if you own your house, it goes back to the state. Correct. It's, for, it's fair use. Um, you don't own your vehicle. You don't, you don't own anything other than maybe your personal belongings. Um, and then that's, you know, just your personal, whatever, whatever is easily you know, you could pack in a bag, essentially. Uh, but your home, your property, you don't own. Um, and that's extremely important. That's the, that's the main key of, of communist theory. The second point here is a heavy progressive or graduated income tax, which <clears throat> I find this to be really, uh, really funny because 
um, a lot of communist thought, although it wasn't really called out in the Communist Manifesto, but it was something that the Soviets tried to accomplish. They really pushed for this, and that was the abolition of all currency. So how you, you know, how you collect taxes on things if you don't have any currency is beyond me. But anyway, number three is an abolition of all rights of inheritance. So if you, if you die, if you die, pass away, any wealth that you've accumulated cannot be passed on to your heirs, to your children. Correct. Correct. Number four is confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels. And, <laughs> and this is what I find so interesting because we have a large group of people on the left today who are, they're wide open, they, you know, they're, they're, they're celebrating, they're opening, they want to open the borders up and let anybody in. But what you have to understand is communist regimes, they despise the immigrants that come into the country. Soviet Union despised them. They, they, they rounded them all up and put them into gulags. They also put their own people into gulags, but, but that's, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. But so does, so does uh, did Maoist China, and you know, Venezuela is doing that. Um, number five, equal liability of all to labor and establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. Uh, number six, the gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country. So they want to get rid of, I mean, you're really talking about, if, if this were to happen in the United States, you're really talking about getting rid of states, you know, no longer having 50 states. You're no longer having, you know, the, the ideas of, of cities or townships anymore. All of that sort of starts to go away. Seven is the free education for all children in public schools and abolition of children's factory labor. That last part seems great. Don't put ch children in working in factories. Uh, but the free education for all children, this is a problem because if, you, if, if the state, we're basically talking about the state educating the children, well, all it is is it's an indoctrination of children into the state's rhetoric or ideology. Number eight is the centralization of credit in the hands of the state. So anytime you need credit for anything, you have to go to your government masters to get it. Number nine, the state would control communication and transportation. You want to jump on a plane and fly to New York? Well, you got to go through, you got to talk to a, a government official to do that. Uh, and you want to get any kind of information off of the World Wide Web, but you want to watch the evening news? Well, guess who controls that? The state controls it. The government, the government power controls that. And number 10, the state factories and instruments of production would cultivate waste wastelands and improve the soil. Yes, bringing in the utopia. Let's just go ahead and grow food for everybody. All right, so I hope that gives people at least a, a basic concept of what's communism is, what communism is trying to accomplish. So let's talk about these. Okay. What? I, I, I was Go going ahead. to say, I, I don't think um, anyone out there can truly grasp what that looks like. And, and I, talk, I talked about this, or at least touched on it last week, that we, we enjoy a lot of luxuries in our normal daily life where we cannot fathom what I think some of these things truly would mean. And it will pick on the easy one, you know, a government edu um, free education for children. Well, why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want that? That sounds fantastic. Until 
you have no option. You have absolutely no control over what your children learn or how they learn it or what they're being taught. Um, this is something, and again, keep in mind that there is no, there's no possible way for any sense of capitalism and communism to coexist. Anybody that tells you that, um, they don't know what they're talking about. The one, one of the benefits of a uh, capitalistic society is that there is um, competition in any marketplace. So in this example, in education, if you have a school that is educating children better, then you have the option as a parent to try and get your child over to that school or should. That's the way it works. In a system where every school all over the country is being taught the same way, and that is all controlled by the government 100%. You have no say in your child's education. Um, whether you think you do or think you don't right now, trust me, you do. Because to actually see the government control what they're being taught, I don't think people can truly grasp that. Um, no, I don't think they can, they can truly grasp it. Here's, here's something that I want people to, um, to think about uh, and, and try to understand. Um, you know, many, many times leftists, particularly in this country, they rail against the idea of capitalism. And, and you know, and free markets for that matter, okay? Um, capitalism in and of itself may not be a perfect system, okay? Uh, but it has single-handedly created more wealth around the globe than any other system that has been tried, and that includes communism. And the reason why that why it does so is because capitalism harnesses human nature to provide wealth. Okay, we have within 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 our human DNA, built within our human DNA, is the need to survive, and we will do things, even kill and murder other human beings in order to survive. We will do that. But what capitalism does is it harnesses that human nature and tries to channel it in a very specific way to produce trade amongst willing participants. And because capitalism is able to channel human nature that way, capitalism has been able to create a tremendous amount of wealth around the world. The problem with communism is, because, is that communism, it does strive to abolish private property and free markets. But here's the, here's the problem with that. Communism just says, you know, when you, when you have new, new uh, government uh, politicians in power, they say, well, we have to get rid of, we have to abolish these free markets and we're abolishing private property. Well, that's fine, but it doesn't change the internal human nature that already exists in every human being. And so in order to completely abolish private property and free markets, you have to deal with that human nature. You can't abolish the human nature, so you have to deal with it. And the only way to deal with that is you have to use coercive force. You have to force people to not own private property, and you have to force people to not use the free markets. We're seeing this in South Africa. We've seen this in Zimbabwe. 
for those of you who are unaware, there, are, there have been white farmers in Zimbabwe and South Africa and who have been quite successful in cultivating the land and producing agricultural crops. But the governments there said, no, that's bad because they're white people. And so they took the property away from them. And by declaring that they could not own this private property, it kicked off violence against the white landowners from the blacks that lived there. And in 2000, this started happening in Zimbabwe. And what Zimbabwe had to actually do is now Zimbabwe is eating crow. Because what ended up happening was they abolished private property. The landowners, many of the landowners were beaten or killed. And so they fled the country. And the Zimbabweans took over. I mean, the whites were also Zimbabweans, but the blacks took over. And guess what? Well, the general population has no idea how to farm because farming is actually pretty darn difficult. And people began starving in droves. And their, their economy took a, took a crap on the open markets. And so now the Zimbabwean government is begging those old farmers to come back. But here's the problem. They're not giving them land back. They're allowing them to lease the land from the government. And many of those, many of those landholders in the past are now saying they fled. Many of them fled to Australia. And many of them are saying, screw you, I ain't going back. Yeah, why would you? Why would you? Why would you? You strip my land. You, you strip me of my livelihood. You strip me of everything. Um, you basically treated me like a criminal and cast me out of the country. And now you want me to come back and pay you to work the land that used to be mine so that you guys don't starve for it? Well, you know, that's the, uh, one of the glories of living in this country is we can actually sit on the outside and understand how ridiculous that would be and understand why those farmers are basically giving them the big middle finger and saying thanks no thanks in in zimbabwe here's the here's the here's the other rub in zimbabwe those white landowners guess who they hired they hired tons of blacks in the local villages and cities to come onto the property onto the land and 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 farm it Mm -hmm. And, and they they divvied up the jobs and they provided jobs to all of those workers the, the audacity of the government, the, the government assumed, hey, since you hire all of the people to come in from the cities and villages to work the land, well, obviously they must know how to farm. So they can just run it, and that's why they ran them out. But it turns out, no, they can't just run it. Because you have, you have the, uh, you had the white landowners in order to be productive, okay, they, they broke down the work and divvied up the work. So not one person knew how to do all of the work. Right. Well, and it's just like a, a, a construction site, if you will. You know, right. you've, got, you've got a job foreman and an engineer at the top who have the entire scope of the job that, that's trying to, or the project, excuse me, that's trying to get done. Um, and then you've got other people who actually know a specific task. And then you've got twice as many just what are general laborers and they show up in the morning. All right, boss, what you need me to do today? Go dig that ditch all day long. Okay, I'm on it. And, right. you know, just because they know how to dig a ditch doesn't mean they know how to erect the skyscraper. Right. And that's what, and that's what happened. It's called the division of labor. So when the white, when the white landowners were driven out of the country, all of, you know, the, the black workers, none of them knew how to actually farm the land. And, and they were unable to farm the land as a collective. 
and the economy took a took a took a crap and people started starving in Zimbabwe and now and now they're begging. So this is what happens when you abolish private property. This is something that ha that is happening that has happened in Zimbabwe and it's starting to happen, been happening now for a little while in South Africa in certain parts. So if in order to deal with that human nature, you have to use the coercive power of the government in order to in order to squash any kind of human nature of trying to own things and trying to trade with other people, right? If I produce one good and service and I want to sell it to you for your dollars that you possess, we, that is the market. That in and of itself is the market. And so we can reach an agreement and I can sell you my good or service and you give me dollars for it. Um, but in order to keep that from happening, you have to come in with the state and oppress people to do that. So when you, when you are using government force, to stifle that human nature, that means in the end, you must argue for and legitimize the power of the state. And so this is sort of this recurring theme among, among leftists. We see it right now in Colorado and Denver and in Portland. We have Antifa and BLM who are screaming against government, against uh, a, a, an understood government oppression. And so they want to abolish the government and they've all called for the abolishment of private property. But in order to abolish that and to control human nature, they will eventually come full circle and they will event if they were to get their way in, in, in total and in, in order to suppress human behavior and also in order to suppress uh, people from speaking out against Antifa and BLM, they will have no other recourse than to use oppressive force against people like me and like you who, disre who, who disagree with BLM and Antifa. So they will have to legitimize centralized government force in order to maintain their power or their ideology. Right. Well, and, and this idea of abolishing um, property. Now, keep in mind, so you and I, and, and we'll take this down to an everyday, uh, our everyday lives. We go to work to purchase food, um, necessities, and our property, whether that's rent, whether that's your mortgage, um, or maybe you're hopefully trying to save up to either get your first house or a new house. You want to upgrade your living status. You know, those are our driving factors that keep us getting up out of bed and going through the grind every day. And it gives us a sense of fulfillment when we can achieve those milestones. And you know, Karl Marx really emphasized everything. The, the, in, in order to overthrow any sense of government, to really push socialism towards that end communist goal where private property would be abolished, there, he really forced this idea of class struggle. That is the key to um, Marxism really being able to take hold and shape a society. And we've t you've heard the term everybody has about class warfare, but I don't think people really understand the entirety of what that means. I mean, it's, it's not just the haves and the have-nots. It's embedding the idea that you every strife you have in your life, every struggle that you have is because you haven't gotten it given to you like the other class of people. And so they should be not only despised for that and blamed for that, but you should hate them for that 
and they are an a enemy. They are a threat, and it, therefore it is okay to call them out, pull them out into public, and violently assault them. I, I mean, it was uh, Lenin who said to take ten of the most prominent business owners in Russia and hang them high in the streets for all to see and send a message that if you have property while someone else does not, you are the enemy of the people. And that's where this, this, all of these protests and all of this struggle that's going on right now, if you listen to the heart of what's going on, that's where this is at. It's, it's this class warfare struggle, whether it's um, Black Lives Matter, where it's a race struggle, or back to the 99 percenter, it was an income um, struggle. I mean, it's always, this is going to be the heart of it always if you actually look through it. So if you are not willing to grab hold of communism in its true form, start looking at these arguments in that regard. Sorry, did I ramble too much there? I feel like I kind of went off on it. <laughs> no, you didn't. It, you know, this and this same thing that I was talking about with regard to Zimbabwe and South Africa, this happened in the Soviet Union. Um, when the Soviet Union, after the Bolsheviks came to power under Lenin, they abolished the, the private property of, of the farm owners. And these farm, you know, these wealthy farm owners, they would bring in people to work the land and cultivate the land and grow crops. And in fact, they were so successful at it that uh, large swaths of the Soviet Union were exporters of grain. They exported a ton of crops to the rest of the world. But after the Bolshevik Revolution and after Lenin came to power, they, they got rid of all of, those, all of those wealthy landowners and they no longer knew how to grow the crops. And what, what Lenin did is he instituted these, these communes and he sent people, he gathered people together that didn't want to live on a commune, but he forced them again in order to, in order to produce the food that your people need to survive, right? You have to force them to do certain things. And so he forced them to go work these lands and they lived on these communes. Now here's a problem with that. Problem is that they didn't own the land. They didn't own the crops that they grew. And so when they would, they would spend some time, you know, growing the crops, but then it sat there. And why did it sit there? Well, because when you have a, when you have, when you're a farmer and you own the land and you own your crops, then you care about the crops. You care that those crops get to the market where they can be sold. And so our farmers are able to get the crops to our markets in time and you get fresh fruit and vegetables that way because it doesn't do the farmer any good for them to harvest a bunch of fruit and vegetables and for that stuff to go bad. But in, in the Soviet Union, it, it would sit there because they said, well, we harvested it, now what? We gotta wait for the state to come pick it up. Well, right. The state couldn't come pick it up fast enough and everything would rot. Right, and so and it, would, it would rot in the field. Yeah, it would just rot there on the pallets or wherever. So it wasn't getting taken to uh, to market, to be sold and be distributed to the rest of, of society. And it, what ended up happening in the early parts of the Soviet Union is there was a massive famine and tens of millions of people suffered and died as a consequence. Yeah. Um, it wasn't because the Soviet Union was unable to grow crops or that they just lacked the, they lacked the, the capability or the natural resources to do so. They lacked the knowledge to do so. 
Uh, and so it, it killed their, it killed off their economy. Right. Um, well, and, and this isn't unique to Russia or Zimbabwe no. or anywhere. I mean, um, China has, has uh, of all the, the nations that have experienced communism, um, has had more people murdered and died. Uh, was it 65 million uh, after communism took hold in, in 49 when Lao, I think, took over? Um, and 65% of that was all purely for due to starvation. And again, I know people out in the, the sound of my voice right now cannot grasp that because we have... I mean, within five miles of your house, I don't know about you, but I have three, four different supermarkets, five, excuse me, that I can go to and get a gallon of milk. I can get eggs. I can get fruits. I can get vegetables. I can get whatever I want. I can get ice cream, probably four or five different tubs, which is nice because I like ice cream. But I mean, I can just go get it. I mean, if you're an Amazon foodie, you don't even have to get up. You can have it delivered right to your house. So the idea of starving because food is not just getting to your area so that you can actually survive, I know that sounds absolutely foreign and ridiculous, and that could never happen here. You know what? Everybody who has gone through this has said that. Well, that would never happen here. We're going to do it right no there is no doing it right so one of the things that communism is always striving to do wherever it's tried is communists want to usher in this utopia of society okay and 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 the idea being that there that everybody would not have any want they would be able to get all of the food that they can eat the government would provide it there would be plenty of opportunity for everybody to just um, procure all of the goods and services that they want. Now, keep in mind that the true that the the true effect of communism or the true goal or aim of communism, the communist states, is to abolish money. So, in other words, the state would just give you housing. They would give you clothes. They would you would just go and pick up your pick up your groceries and go home and 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 consume them at home and eat them, right? And all that would be well and good. Well, there's a problem with that in order to achieve that utopia. In order to achieve that utopia, you have to produce goods and services that need social demand. Now, how do you do that? Well, in a free market system under capitalism, prices are really information flows. And what prices do is they send signals not only to consumers, but they send signals back up through the supply chain to the producers of those goods and services, and they let them know how much something is in demand. And so based on what people are willing to spend for certain goods and services, they will adjust their prices. The producers will adjust their prices either up or down um, to meet that, to meet the demand of society. But in a communism utopia, how do you achieve that if you're trying to eliminate, you're trying to eliminate information pathways that are carried through, through the pricing system because you're trying to eliminate dollars, you're trying to eliminate currency. The only way to produce the goods and services for society is you have to use uh, statistics and look at past trends uh, in order to meet demand. So you have to say, well, what did the people eat last year? So let's, let's produce up to that certain amount. 
that sounds well and good. But the problem, the problem that you have to do is that the supply and the demand have to be stabilized, which means, and, and it can't be stabilized because the population is always ebbing and flowing. People are right. always being born and growing up or people are dying or getting sick and they're, they're things, you know, things change. So there's a lot of change that's happening all the time in the population. So your supply and demand is never going to be stable. It's never going right. to be stabilized. Okay. Well, and you can't, you can't utilize, I'm sorry, I know I cut you off, I apologize, but you, you can't utilize that simple idea to forecast out. You cannot tell me that people in the last six months are pooping more than they were last year. <laughs> but has the demand for toilet paper gone absolutely through the roof between yeah. the months of March through May? Yeah. Yes. Were there normal everyday Americans looking at toilet paper, even some of that like, you know, biodegradable camping RV style stuff that they could get online and paying, you know, $60 for a six pack because it was all they could find. Yes. But that was because we were losing our mind. That doesn't mean that people want toilet paper that bad that they're willing to pay for it. They're just freaked out that they're not going to be able to get it when they need it. Now, that is a very interesting glimpse. Imagine that a normal, everyday product that you use is just simply not available because it's controlled and your shipment has not yet come in. This is a, just a glimpse of what state ownership of your life could look like now I, and and the 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 whole barter system we're just going to go back to trading goats for pigs and trading eggs for milk and lettuce for this you know what that's uh, that's great that's great money was invented currency was invented for a reason imagine that you don't have a crop that is in demand if you grow lettuce and you were traveling somewhere and that's all you have and everybody's already got lettuce, guess what? You've got nothing. So there's, that's why the coin was invented way back when. Besides that, if everybody's getting supplied for something and you don't have any reason for currency, you also don't have any reason to um, milk a cow and you don't have any reason to collect eggs from your chickens you if you're just getting it so then therefore nobody has anything and i'm sorry if you're going to again remember that this is all the class struggle is what drives this you and your neighbor cannot have a different home either because that creates struggle in the utopia so therefore all of that is government owned and why have a house when you can build an apartment complex and I mean an apartment style complex. And yeah, you and your four uh, family members get to move into your one room alongside your next door neighbor because they've got one room and so does everybody else. And everybody shares the shower because we don't, nobody gets anything different or special. But you know, and part of the problem too is in order to achieve that, that stabilization of supply and demand, then you have to produce those goods and services. And that means your technology also has to be stabilized as well. So your technology cannot improve. 
And you might say, well, well, why is that? Why could technology never improve over that? Well, because under communism, the idea is you have to achieve a state of utopia and nothing changes from that point. Keep in mind that when we're talking about changing of technology, in order to change technology, you have to consume resources and you have to experiment because you have to spend resources to look for new ways of doing things, which means in some cases you're going to fail. You're going to, you're going to experiment and you're going to find dead ends. You're going to run into things that do not work, that are not improvements to the way that you produce goods and services. So you're going to use resources, which are finite and which are precious. You're going to use resources and you're going to fail. And the government, the state cannot have uh, people just using up resources for no benefit at all. Those resources must be used to good effect. And so even technology to produce food, for example, or to create clothing, for example, will never be able to change. That's, that's what ends up happening under communism. And, and this was realized under Soviet Russia. Under Soviet Russia, there, the, the vehicles that people had hardly ever worked. After the Bolsheviks took over and, Soviet, and, this, and the Soviet uh, government was in place, most of, the, most of the agriculture farming that took place occurred with like, things like wooden plows. They didn't even have steel plows, um, let alone have tractors and things like that over time. They never had those kinds of things. And if so, they existed in very, very few uh, amounts and most of the time they were constantly broken because they did not have the technology to produce replacement parts to fix tractors and equipment that would break in the field. Um, and so this is a fallacy of communism of the communist state. So to achieve to be able to achieve that utopia where all of your supply and demand is stabilized and your output and production levels are stabilized is a pipe dream. It cannot happen. It hasn't happened under Soviet Russia. It never happened under, under Cuba, in, in Cuba, under the Castro regime. Um, and we saw that after we were able to go back into Cuba. You, we see that, uh, that even the vehicles and the technology that they use, it's, it's, like, it's as if the country was frozen back in the 1940s and 50s. Um, everything is outdated. Very few things work. Um, and most of the infrastructure is crumbling and falling apart because the government cannot use resources to fix those things. It just, it cannot. Um, and, and we continue to see this across many communist states. So to think that it's going to change, you can't just wave a magic wand and say, well, we're just going to have, you know, we're going to have plenty of, of food and whatever we want, and we're going to have wonderful technology, you know, achieving the, the, uh, Federation of Planets from Star Trek and their utopian vision, that's a pipe dream. It's never going to happen. It doesn't happen under communism. Right. Well, and, and I, I always, when we talk about technology and, and media, keep in mind, government control over media and communications, that is a pillar of communism. They have to be able to control what the people are uh, consuming as far as information. So your phone, your internet, your TV, your news is all government fed and government regulated. But you, you look at the advances or, or lack thereof in technology. And I always think of the example of, um, if you ever seen a satellite image of uh, North and South Korea 
at night. Uh-huh. Um, South Korea looks like a Christmas tree all lit up just like, you know, east, the east and west coast of uh, the United States. It's bright and you can see all the lights. And North Korea, it's, it's pitch black. It's dark. I mean, it's, it's absolutely night, literally night and day difference looking at the two of them. And it is, it's just, it's stuck back in time. It, it, there's, there's no improvement. There's no going on. And you have no options at that point. What are you going to do? You can't say, well, I'm going to go get the new iPhone when it comes out. Uh, guess what? Apple doesn't exist anymore. It's owned by the government. You're muted again, buddy. Um, this is and- a picture. So this is a picture that I'm showing here between the Koreas on the Korean Peninsula. Um, so you can see in the, in the bottom portion, this is South Korea. That's completely lit up. And in the upper portion, you can see you can see parts of China. So the light in the upper portion of the picture is actually China. And then you can see where there's just like this wall. And most of North Korea is just completely dark. So this is North Korea and South Korea as, as seen from space at night. Um, and you can see a little bit, there's this blip here, that's Pyongyang. Uh, and you can see Seoul, Korea, all brightly lit up here in the south near the border. Um, but yeah, that's a yeah. communist country. There you go. And it's, it, it just cracks me up. Um, and that's not because people wouldn't like to be able to turn on the electricity and read a book at night. Um, but they don't have the means or are not allowed to do so. There was an article, it just came out just a, a week or two ago, that North Korea, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un, he has outlawed the owning of dogs. You cannot own dogs anymore in North Korea. So they're actually going, you know, the, the state is going around the country and rounding up all of the, the pets, the dog pets that people have. Now, keep in mind, most, most of the uh, middle class and poor do not have dogs. There are wild dogs throughout the country, but many of the pet owners are members of the party um, and they hold very high positions of power within the party. But they are—they can no longer own own dogs either. Um, some are speculating that the reason why they why the government is rounding up dogs is to turn them into food. Uh, that's yeah, what some I people was are speculating. Ask. Yeah, some yep. people are speculating it's for food uh, because there are many people starving throughout North Korea. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, the the starvation is a very serious issue out there. Now, keep in mind, of course, um, North Korea, just like everybody else who has done communism in the past or experimented with it, they're just doing it wrong. So um, it's going to work here if we actually do that. So the other part that I that I really find interesting is the uh, the government jobs and income control. Now we talked a little bit on the Mm -hmm. income portion, but um, so tell me, why is uh, the government, everybody gets a job because the government's going to give you a job. Why is that bad? Dr. Ramirez, tell me about that. <laughs> well, well, the reason, well, the reason why it's bad, especially under communism, is because um, if the government, you know, and people have made this claim, they say, well, the government can simply print money. Yeah, well, they, well, they can print money. Um, but the problem with that is if you print money, then the money becomes meaning, 
it becomes meaningless. So you have to control the money supply such that the money actually has value. And you have, and all you have to do is look to the Weimar Republic, which was uh, pre-World War II Germany, um, to see that, or pre-World War I Germany for that matter, uh, and, and a government that printed money hand over fist, and they would pay people uh, several times during the day because the value of their currency would plunge within a few hours. So imagine, if you will, that at noon, a loaf of bread costs $50, but by 3 p.m. that same afternoon, that loaf of bread is now going to cost $75 because the inflation is rampant. So the more dollars that you have flooding, in, flooding through the, the, the country causes inflation to occur. So you can't just print dollars without any attributable wealth existing within the government. Uh, so you can't just give people a job and say, well, have at it. Now, there have been people that have said, well, why don't we just give a million dollars to every American? Well, if you give a million dollars to every American, that doesn't mean they're, they're going to be productive and produce goods and services within the economy. Uh, and so if everybody, if every American has a million dollars, then that means there are more dollars flooding through the economy, which means prices will naturally inflate and go higher and higher. So that million, that million dollars overnight would not net you very many goods or services come morning. Um, the other thing too about you know, minimum wage laws is minimum wage, you, you're, you have to look at it in terms of supply and demand because um, the, the, the wage is the price for my labor. So the supply is the number of people who can do a particular job. So if you're an electrician, there are so many electricians that exist in the economy, which means there, are, there is a supply for electrical work that can be done in the country. And depending on the demand for electricians, that will determine the overall cost or the price to acquire an electrician to do a given job. And so if the demand is really, really high, then the, then the cost to hire an electrician is gonna be really high in order to account for that. So our wages are actually the price for our labor. And really the ultimate minimum wage is $0. Um, because there are some people that have no skills and that the best way for them to learn is to actually not get paid. It's to sell their services and say, look, I have no idea how to do this job, but please teach me. And if I'm running a business or you're running a business, if I'm gonna bring somebody onto my business who has no idea how to do the job, then it's actually better for me to offer them more like an internship, for example, bring them on board, not pay them at all, but give them a ton of education. So they're actually getting paid, they're getting paid in knowledge which they can then turn around and use that knowledge subsequently to get a better paying job at a later date. Which has always been interesting to me because the, the idea of a um, volunteer, an internship, a apprenticeship, if you will, um, sounds very communistic, not communist as in a, uh, a communist state, but as in the, uh, the commune, the trade and barter um, mentality. And yet, I believe that there's even been an outcry here recently about not being able to take interns without paying them. Without paying them. So why um, is it that you equate, why is it that you equate like an internship with a commune? Well, so the way I, so if we, if we're in that, that free trade and barter idea, you know, I, I need a goat, you have a pig. 
um, or I have a goat, you have a pig, I need one, you need one, we're going to trade. It's not a matter of dollars. It's not a coin. It's not a piece of gold or silver, which would uh, equate to a currency, if you will, quote unquote. But you're trading a good or service for another good or service. So in that idea, I'm going to give you labor, my labor, in which, and then you are going to educate me. I'm getting the education back from you. That's a trade for that service. But that's different from a commune. So a commune is when everybody is a community sharing amongst themselves and everybody owns the particular property. What, what you described is a one-on-one -on -one transaction, mm -hmm. whether you're using pigs or dollars or knowledge and labor as the, the source of, uh, as the, you know, the currency at play. Um, that's a lot different than a commune. You are correct. And what I, I, the point that I guess I was getting to, um, was that one, if we actually eliminate currency as a whole, we go back to a simple trade and barter system, which I've heard and you've heard, I'm sure as well. Sure. Um, the ultimate goal from what I've, I've said is that's going to eventually morph into everybody comes into one place, brings everything and then divvies that up equally. That's the, um, everything comes into one place and everyone gets their fair share. Uh, that's where things start to break down because ultimately you will always have, it starts off as one person who says, well, I'm going to get my fair share whether I do anything or not. So I'm just not going to do anything and I'm going to get my piece. Well, then his two friends go, well, shoot, I'm not going to do anything either because Bob's not doing anything. So why should I? And then it's going to eventually turn down to there's one person trying to rustle around and make everything, make all ends meet for everyone. And finally, everybody gives up. Well, and that, and that happens in, this, in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So people were forced to work on farms. They were forced to work in uh, factories. They didn't have an option. They, they, they weren't hired as, as the way we hire workers today. Um, they were told to. They were specifically, the state came to them and said, uh, Jason, you and your family, you're going to go live and work on a commune farm. Um, whether you want to or not, we're going to send you to Siberia and you're going to work a particular farm or they're going to send you to work in a factory. But the problem with that was uh, it was considered unemployment on the job because people were not held accountable to what they were producing. They didn't own anything that they produced. If, if, I'm, if I'm a laborer, if I'm an electrician in a factory, then I own my labor, which means you pay me in dollars. You pay me something that I want and we negotiate. If I want pigs, then I can, sit, I can work with you and say, okay, you, you give me 10 pigs and I'll give you X number of hours of on-the-job work for, you know, in your factory. Right? Or I say, give me $1,000 and I'm going to give you labor that equates to $1,000 worth of worth of effort. Um, but because the Soviet Union wasn't operating like that, it was the Soviet people referred to it as being unemployment, unemployed, but on the job. And in fact, there was a saying in the Soviet Union that said, I'll pretend to work as long as they pretend to pay me. Yeah. Um, and, and so what you had, <laughs> you had a stifling of the economy. You had people that were unproductive. Um, in cases where you had farm, where there was farming and there were there was even some crops that were developed, as I mentioned earlier, the state couldn't come and collect those those goods that were, were produced that were harvested 
And so many people turned around and they just, guess what they did with it? They made alcohol with it. They, they, made, they turned it into vodka and they drank it. Um, and so alcoholism in the Soviet Union was sky high. In fact, the mortality rate, or the, I should say, the life expectancy of men, of men fell from 68 to 64 years of age during the Soviet Union, at least the early part of the Soviet Union. The infant mortality rate increased from 3 to 7% during the Soviet Union. Um, and, and one of the major causes of these trends, both for men and, and for infants, was alcoholism because people had nothing, they had nothing better to do. There was no hope for them, for them and their lives. There was no way for them to seek out their dreams and to create a small business or to go to the university to get a, a training for a different job that they wanted. They were told what they were going to do. They had no choice in the matter. And so people, they drank. They drink. And well, and there's, there's nothing to work for. It's not as though Correct. you can increase your living status. Um, you're not allowed to, you have no property, no, nothing. And you know, this is, inter- we've talked about this with a minimum wage even before you, you, if you're given a government job, the government says, okay, we're going to hire you and you're going to fix VCRs. Nobody uses VCRs, but we need somebody to do it. So you're going to do it. And because we're giving you this government job, we can set the minimum wage for that. And you know what? It's $100 an hour. And you go, wow, that's great. And keep in mind, though, in order for us to be able to provide you your housing, to provide you your food, to provide you your clothes and your transportation, and we're going to provide you all that. So we're going to have to increase your taxes. All right. Well, I can, I, I can understand that. That makes sense. You know, you can take more money from me cause I won't need as much of it. Um, how much are we talking? Well, we're looking at about 80% of your gross income. So you're going to pay me a hundred dollars an hour and take 80% of it, which leaves me with 20. Well, that's yeah. So that's $20 an hour. That's still not bad, but oh yeah. Then we're going to stipend that out because we also have an issue over here with your homeless problem that we're also going to be taking that and your electricity stipend is going to have to go up. And it's, you know, it's not just high taxes. When, when the government has the ability to set your tax rate and set your income level and set the job, you're, you have literally no freedoms whatsoever, no choice in the matter and no reason to try to improve your situation for yourself or your family because it's futile. Right. You know, look at some, you know, look at some of the, the school meals that we produce in public school systems. Um, they're pretty terrible. They're pretty terrible. What, what people fail to realize is if you're going to give a good, right, like a box lunch, for example, or phone connectivity or Wi-Fi, and you have to give it to everybody in the country you're not getting high end no no you're you're not you're not getting high end you're getting bargain basement you're getting because in order for it to be fair everything must be equally shitty exactly and and i i this is this is what pisses me off about everybody you know equality now equality now um and this this class warfare crap that's happening right now you are not going to say all right the government gives everybody the exact same and expect your status and what you have right now i don't care how 
crappy you have it and expect that to actually go up. It's not going to happen. In order for the, the, a government, any government, to meet the needs of everybody in the citizenry equally, everybody has to come down to the very lowest sustainable level possible for that to happen. And I guarantee you, you are living way above what that looks like right now. I don't care where you are. You know, one of the interesting things that happened after the fall of, or actually it was right before the fall of the, of the Soviet Union, so probably like the last 20 to 30 years of the Soviet Union, the CIA was doing a lot of work to try to estimate the size of the country's gross national product. And by country, I mean the Soviet Union. Because they were trying to understand how they were doing economically. We, it was really difficult to understand because they, they were behind the Iron Curtain at the time and they were not producing any statistics on how their economy was functioning. And the CIA was trying to figure out, well, how do we take down, or how do we combat communism itself? And in order to do that, we need to understand how they might be spending their dollars, where they might be you know, focused, focusing their efforts on their economy. Um, and the problem with that is the CIA was conducting estimates. They were, they were building these statistical, uh, you know, um, routines and method developing methodologies to try to determine what the, G the, the GNP was, the gross national product. The problem is that they were using, they were using rationality based on what we know about economics. And what we know about economics is really free market, or at least at the time was free market economics. Um, and so, what we discovered after the fall of the Iron Curtain is the estimates for of the CIA were completely off the mark. And the reason why they were completely off the mark is because prices, okay, and the flow of goods and services throughout the country were not based on any um, pricing mechanism. They were not based on the consumption of supply and demand and the relationships between supply and demand, they were entirely based on political logic. So it was the logic of the planners, not the logic of the market. And this is why the CIA realized very, very quickly after the fall of the Soviet Union that their models were entirely, entirely off base. We had no idea we were completely wrong and wrong in the wrong direction. In, we were so wrong that we thought it was, you know, it was this hot, you know, it was, it was, it was up to here. And in reality, the GNP was in the basement. It wasn't even, you know, if you had a hundred floor building, we thought, well, maybe it's around level, you know, the 40th floor. It wasn't even close to level to the second level. It was in the basement still. I hadn't even gotten out of the basement because the logic of the economy was all entirely wrapped up in the logic of the plan. And the plan had to be carried out by central planners. Um, and their, the, G, the, the gross national product was absolutely beyond abysmal. And so we believe today that, so learning what we learned, taking what we learned from the Soviet Union and applying those, those lessons to places like North Korea, North Korea is abysmal and it's probably still even more abysmal than we realize. Uh, and it, which is why people are people, North Koreans 
do their do everything they can, and many are willing to die to try to escape North Korea because it is it is an absolute hellhole, hell on earth. Yeah, and and if you look at at so whether you you think communism is the answer to all of our prayers or not, one thing that always stands out to me is what are the countries people are desperately trying to get out of and what are they willing to risk to do that throughout history? And what are the countries that people are desperately trying to get into and risking life and limb to do that? That is a fair and fairly impartial glimpse at what real life looks like. And every communist country throughout history, people have literally been killed and murdered, desperately trying to escape. You know, one of the interesting things about, that I think is really interesting about the Soviet Union is um, both Lenin and Stalin did this. And they, Lenin and Stalin recognized it's believed that they recognized that their policies and their ideology was destroying the country from within. Um, Lenin more, more so than Stalin, but both of them did implement or did allow markets to come back. They turned a blind eye to certain markets. And we now see this, we now know this is happening in North Korea with Kim, with Kim Jong-un. Um, so Lenin and Stalin both were driving because they both wanted to implement full-throated communism. They really tried, and they they got they got really close. They were trying, for example, they were trying to abolish currency, um, and they were getting closer and closer. But at, every time they got closer and closer, the the economy began to just deteriorate um, by leaps and bounds. And the only way that they could increase production in the in the economy. And the only way they could get these quick turnarounds to occur was to allow markets, was to allow, you know, basically turn a blind eye to markets and basically say, okay, you guys can sell property or you can sell the goods and services that you have and we're going to look the other way. And when they did that, especially during the 20s, uh, Lenin ins instituted that during the 20s. And the 20s were, they weren't a great period of time for the Soviet Union, but even among the Soviet Union's terrible standards, the 20s were still considered to be an economic boom for the country uh, because these markets were allowed to, uh, to exist to a certain degree. Well, and, you know, it, it was, speaking of which, just fun fact, I don't know, do you know how Lenin even got to Russia? Because he was hiding in exile in Holland. Yeah, he was in exile uh, for a number of years. Yeah. Do you know the story about how he got back? I know it's out there. No, <laughs> but not off the top of my head. Um, I actually coming back, but I remember him coming. You know, I remember I read extensively about him coming back. Yeah. But not so, necessarily about his traveling back. He was so he was in exile in Holland, and and this yeah. is a, a, actually I think an important little tidbit. Um, and he wanted to get back to Russia, and he contacted the German government to try and get him um, extradited back to Russia. And this was during World War I, and Russia and Germany were, were enemies at the time and involved in the war. And Germany agreed 
to actually implant Lenin into Russia because they believed that his ideology, his theology, would destroy Russia from within. And they agreed to do that, but they, the condition was they had to put him on a sealed train that he could not escape from because they were so afraid that his ideology would actually leak out into Germany and cause them problems. They sealed him in a train and sent him over to Russia. And they actually, he landed there and yeah, it took hold real quick. But I thought that was kind of fun fact. They, they recognized it as, as a, he was a weapon. His ideology was a destructive disease that would literally eat away at the host country it was in. And that's pretty, oh, that's <laughs> pretty telling. Yeah. Uh, well, and it did, you know, and, and he, he established a lot of the gulags and it wasn't until Stalin that really cranked up those gulags. But, uh, you know, people, people tend to think, um, and sadly many Americans on the left think this, uh, they, they have a very warped definition or perception of what the gulags actually were like. Um, they, they, were not, they were not wonderful places to be. Uh, and they were not just simply a place for people with dissenting opinions. Yes, there were people who had dissenting opinions against the state who were sent to the gulags. Uh, and, but they weren't always for that. They were for just about anybody. Um, you have to keep it, you have to remember that it was, it's estimated that three out of every five people in the Soviet Union were informants for the state. Correct. So if that meant even in your immediate family, the odds of somebody in your immediate family being an informant to the state was pretty high. Um, and they would come in the middle of the night sometimes, or they would catch you on the way to the supermarket. Um, and many times they would, when they arrested you, you had no idea what you were being arrested for. Uh, many people didn't, never went to, uh, they never had a, a, a court or, um, they never went to court or saw a judge where they were sentenced. They were simply sentenced by the police officers that uh, rounded them up. Often they were told they were going to be home in a few hours, but just come to come with me to ask, answer a few questions and they never came home. It became a prevailing theme among many of the, the Soviet, many of the Soviet population that if you have not yet been to the gulag, then your time just hasn't come yet. So the assumption was everybody at some point was going to be in, was going to serve time in the gulag. Um, and many people did. And they were, they were horrible, horrible places. I mean, you're talking about um, in many cases where you had a cell that was maybe a, you know, four foot by eight foot room and they would stack people in there, not just one or two people, but they would have an oftentimes 20 people in that tiny room huddled together. Um, many people, many of those rooms did not have heating or cooling. Uh, and you're talking in places in Siberia where it was freezing temperatures. Um, many of the buildings where the prisoners were, were kept did not have windows. So the, they were exposed to the elements at night. Um, starvation was rampant. And, and keep in mind that, that the, government, the government had auditors that would go around to the different gulags 
and they would look at what they were at what the administrators were doing at, in the gulags and they would report back to moscow and moscow would create rules and say no, no 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 you can't do this you have to give everybody a blanket and you have to give everybody a pillow and you have to give everybody uh, so many pieces of clothing well that was fine but it never happened why did it never happen? Because they were never given the supplies to hand out. And so you had people starving um, as well as being tortured. I mean, these you had people that were not political prisoners, that were not, yes, there were a lot of people in the gulags from, uh, from Germany that were captured during the war and sent to the gulags, but you had just normal Soviet citizens who were sent and they were tortured in the gulags um, and, and often used as uh, slave labor to cultivate the land and to grow crops or to uh, serve in, in the mines and mine gold and precious metals and coal and build roads and railway systems. Um, the railway systems didn't work. And in fact, the railway systems that gulags, that the members of the gulags built uh, were never used because they couldn't use them. They were, they were terrible. They didn't have the actual equipment to build railroads. Imagine trying to build a railroad with your bare hands. Um, it just can't be done. I mean, you can make some headway and make it look like you built something, but you can't actually take a train and, <laughs> and support the weight and speed of a train running on it. Uh, and and this, these were things that happen, um, you know, quite regularly. I mean, there was a story, I think I told it to you before, where there was a, 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 there was a particular gulag and they were supposed to be harvesting uh, wood from one of these forests that the gulag was in and the people were worked were worked practically to death out in the freeze out in the cold in northern siberia that people were that the 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 people of the gulag all the, basically the slaves the slaves there they chopped off their own hands and feet just so that they could stop working now imagine that Yep. I, we can't, Americans can't fathom that. No, no, we, not even close. We, we cannot fathom that. Imagine being so malnourished and so worked to death without any kind of break at all. And these are your government masters who are forcing you to do this. And you're, you're working to chop down trees. You don't have the proper equipment to do so. And you don't even have the proper coverings out there to protect yourselves from the cold. And you're willing to chop off your hands and your feet just so that you can get a break and stop working. Yeah. And I, I really, I, I don't understand. Maybe you can help me. I'm going to ask you since I can't ask anybody else right now. Um, I've heard so many people say, well, yeah, that happened. Yes, they recognize it. Yes, it was true. But that was old communism that was in the soviet union that was in china that was in germany that was that was all these other places you know yes china 65 million dead yes soviet russia 25 or 20 million dead yes i mean everybody understands that cuba venezuela the list goes on and on but there's still this pervasive idea this just ignorant blissful disbelief that that would just never happen here and i don't understand how 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 that can be how, how can somebody be that blissfully ignorant to 
the facts. Now, and this is not, keep in mind, this is not our opinion. These are outlined verbatim in the Communist Manifesto, written by Karl Marx, adopted by, uh, uh, I mean, even BLM right now, who's out there protesting, Antifa, whose sole purpose is to create violence in the streets against political enemies and push for the um, absolute abolishment of any kind of police force. That, that's their purpose. It's written into their mission. How can you believe that that can't happen and won't here now? Yeah. Help um, me understand that. You know, we, we have lived a very uh, privileged, I'll use that word, privileged life here in the West. Um, Americans do not understand real poverty as it exists in the world. I mean, if you're poor in this country, you still likely have two vehicles. You still likely have cable television. Um, you, you probably have a flat screen TV. You probably have a cell phone. Um, and you're probably eating at McDonald's or Burger King on a, on a daily basis uh, to a certain degree. You have running water. Now, there are people in our country that don't have those things and that are, are even more worse off, but that, those are outliers. Those are few and far between. But the majority of people in our country who are considered poor in this country still have an exorbitant amount of wealth when compared to the rest of the world. If you make... If, if, you, if your household makes $20,000 a year in this country, you don't have a whole hell of a lot. But compared to the rest of the world, which averages about a dollar a day, you are, you are ridiculously wealthy compared to the rest of the world. So even our poor are extremely rich, comparatively speaking. Now then, we live in a very privileged society and thank we got that way because of our capitalistic uh, ventures. Um, and people here, we tend to look at things through rose-colored glasses. And we think that, well, I could never, I would never be able to uh, torture somebody, right? The problem is, is well, the, the Germans who tortured the Jews in the Nazi concentration camps, uh, the Russians who tortured people in the gulags, they never thought that they would be able to torture and, and treat their countrymen in the same way. They never thought they could do that to another human being. Um, there exists within us the capability to go along and, and to follow orders and, and to get intoxicated by the power that we wield. That's just human nature. That's a part of us and we have to combat that. So, Every single one of us needs to recognize that that is something, the ability to torture and murder our you know, fellow people in the name of an ideology, that exists within all of us. And you're not immune to it. You might think you are immune to it. Um, but it, it takes a very, very, very strong-willed person who understands these kinds of things to be able to resist. Because what is the alternative? If you resist... The alternative is death because there's going to be somebody standing behind you that says, well, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. You mean if I, if, I kill, if I kill this person or if I torture them, then I'm going to get food for my family, right? Yep. Um, if, if I torture this person, then, then my spouse is not going to be killed. 
So it takes a very strong-willed person to say, no, I'm not going to do it, and I'm gonna, you can kill me, and you can kill my spouse as well. I don't care. Uh, I care enough for my fellow man, and I care enough about what is right that I'm not going to do that. Most people will succumb. And it's, it's proven over and over again in sociological experiments, in psychological experiments. Um, you know, you, you, there's the, the Milgram experiments, which have, which have explained this. Um, there, there's a, a movie you can see on Netflix about uh, the Stanford experiment, the Stanford prison experiment. That was not too long ago, back in the right. 70s. Where yeah, we saw yeah, 70s people, it was. Yeah. Um, so we, humans have this innate dark side within us that we are able to rationalize our, our way into, into treating other people this way. Or, if nothing else, the things we do value are held over our head and, and allow it to, to take place. The, the reason why we get there, though, the reason why it comes to that point is because you, you, the, ideology, the ideology says, you know what, the people who think contra to what we believe, they're the enemy, and they don't deserve respect, and they don't deserve to be treated kindly. Just, um, just this past week, there was video of Black Lives Matter and Antifa going through uh, middle-class suburbs around Portland in the middle of the night, shining lights into the upper floors of, of rooms of the houses on, on um, you know, PA systems and everything. They're clamoring, waking people up that, you know, in the middle of the night, waking up the residents in these suburbs and telling them that they have to give up their property. We just had a BLM supporter just today say that retribution is coming and they're not asking for permission. And if you stand in their way, we're going to get run over. You have people right now who are threatening violence because what they have done is they've said, you don't hold the same ideology that we do. Therefore, it's okay to do harm to you. And we're seeing that in our country right now. And that's how we get there is because they dehumanize the other side. They dehumanize people that have contraviews. This is, we see this played out already when people are getting fired. You have social justice warriors on the left who find out who your employer is because, and they don't like your, your belief system. So they find out who your employer is and they ruin your lives and they get you fired. Um, they're willing, they are willingly, they're willing to ruin other people's lives just because they don't think the way that they do. And that and, and we're, we're there. We are there yeah, right now. Yeah. This, and this is the dangerous end. I think you and I have alluded to multiple times in talking about our, our cancel culture that we're in right mm -hmm. now um, mm -hmm. and silencing people's voices. We talked about even back in our, uh, when we talked about free speech, yeah. You know, um, whether it's uh, uh, YouTube or Facebook or Google or whoever, censoring what people are saying, that kind of cancel culture, this is the end. This is where this goes. Mm -hmm. And now you have people who are literally being um, threatened with, their, with bodily harm or their lives if they don't agree with someone. That's a, that's a big problem, mm -hmm. a big problem. And I don't care what side of the political aisle you're sitting on. You know that's a problem. 
because if it can happen to me, it can happen to you and vice versa. It does not matter. And we're at a point now where it doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree, say you agree or disagree. It's whether I believe you agree or disagree. There is absolutely no end to the tyranny in that. And, and there's that it is beyond irresponsible. It is imminently dangerous. Yeah, it, it is very dangerous. And it's, it's why I, it's why cancel culture, cancel culture um, needs to stop. Uh, it, it's, it's why Antifa and Black Lives Matter needs to stop. Um, they've lost their message. You know, I think that there were people in the Black Lives Movement, that, uh, in the Black Lives Matter movements, that had a good point initially. I think I think there are some. I think there were some good people in that in the initial days of the movement, that in their perception, that they saw that there were certain injustices being committed against people of color. I get sure. it. Sure. And and they they felt that that was wrong. Uh, and they were standing for uh, the abolishment of that wrongness, so to speak. Uh, but that movement has been co-opted. That movement has been co-opted by Marxists. Uh, and, and now they've lost that message. And now they're coming for revenge. They're, they're literally coming for revenge. That's how the Bolsheviks came to power uh, in the Soviet Union. That's how Mao came to power in China. That, um, you know, it, it's all over the place and we see it happening here. These, and you, these people are willing, they're willing to kill in, their, in the name of their ideology. And for them, they can sleep well at night because people that are not part of their movement have a different value system. And so if you're in the movement, in Antifa, in BLM, you're able to dehumanize those other people, people like me, people like you. You're able to dehumanize us, and therefore, we our lives are not worthy of living. They're not worth living at all, and so we're just we're animals. And we saw this through we saw this throughout Europe in the early 1900s, in late 1800s, early 1900s against the Jewish people. Um, it, it, you know, they were dehumanized, and political political ideology was shown that hey, these people go get them. You know, they're the ones that are causing you all of the strife in your life. They're the ones that have all of the wealth. They're the ones that are keeping you down and oppressed. Those were the, the exact same arguments that Antifa and BLM are saying about people on the right is, is the exact same thing that, that the politicians during Europe said against the Jews, what against, you know, the Bolsheviks said against the Jews and the Nazi Germany said against the Jews and fascist Italy said against the Jews. Uh, all of these dictators said the exact same thing and people in power said the exact same thing and that's how why they were able to round up jews and, and murder them with no problem yeah yeah and when you when you cross the threshold where your political enemies or people that you see as having different views become your actual enemies yeah you you enter into a different frame of mind um psychologists talk about this with the the change of mind from um opposition to enemies of war yeah. Because it, you know, for a soldier to fight in a war, they actually see, they don't see the enemy as people anymore. It's a complete dehumanization of them. They right. are opposing um, figures. They're, they're uh, accustomed to animals, like you said. And they're, they have to, the human mind almost has to do that in order for you to be able to carry out killing other people. Mm -hmm. And, 
And just like a, uh, a serial killer or a, a psychopath in that regard really does, they don't see people as people anymore. They're, they're, they're subjects, they're prey, they're targets, they're, you know, their jobs. It's when you can actually look at your neighbor and because they don't agree on, I don't know, pick anything. I mean, for God's sake, some of the things we're arguing about right now are so absolutely ridiculous. It's mind boggling. And be at a point where you're, you're, you disagree with them on something. And now that justifies you being able to dehumanize them to a point where you can eliminate them from the living realm of existence. I, where, how do you come back from that? How do we come back from that? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's a way back from it. I, I, I truly don't know if there's a way back from it. And this is the same argument um, that people who look down upon or who abhor abortion, right? It's the same, it's the same kind of argument. Um, you, you know, leftists will, they, they, what they do is they go through, they go to great lengths to redefine what an unborn child is. And, and they go through great lengths to define it as a clump of cells or to, you know, refer to it as just a fetus, not as a human being, right? They, they create all of these different labels. Well, they're creating labels so that they don't see the humanness of the unborn. And if you don't see the humanness of the unborn, then it's easy to kill it. Um, and so <clears throat> they do the exact same thing, <clears throat> excuse me, for actual human beings that are walking around. If you can dehumanize them, if you can find something about them that is not of worth, <clears throat> then uh, then it's easy to to kill them. Well, and and you know anybody who's gone to the doctor has felt that before, or been in the hospital, or or done any of that. We we have a problem with that in medicine, in my opinion, right now. Nobody's a, a person. <clears throat> Once you walk through those doors, you're a patient, and you're yeah. you're you don't have you know it's not you know hey Mr. Ramirez, what's going on with you? Um, it's no, I have this patient who's here, who is a cardiac patient with a, this, with a, that you become a diagnosis and a number and everybody's felt that and, and gotten very upset about that. And yet nobody sees the, uh, nobody sees the opposing argument on the other end. It just, it, it kind of, it, it frustrates me. Um, the hypocrisy and the argument, it, it just, um, I guess I it, I take it a little personally, and I don't know why, but so. Well, good talk. I think we kind of talked about this one around. Do you have any last uh, last minute uh, or last parting thoughts before we lay this issue to rest? Um, no, not necessarily. Other than I'll, I will say this. Um, again, I, you know what? No, I'm not going to hold back. To heck with it. Communism is a failed system. It's failed for a reason. Um, Black Lives Matter is a Marxist-backed organization. That's not my opinion. That's fact. I mean, um, go look it up. Antifa it. Yeah. was is a absolute. Um, it's it's a terrorist organization. Sorry to say, whether you like that or not, go look it up. It was started back in 1932. And if you don't believe me that they're linked, I mean, the, the names are close enough if you can't, um, but the, the logo is the exact same. And their entire purpose is to terrorize people and police and to physically assault and outright kill their 
enemies in the streets for the public to see. It's to create fear and um, prop up class indifferences so that the masses feel slighted against those in power so that they will rise up in violence against those in power. And if you don't think any of that can happen here right now, turn on whichever news channel you prefer to watch and look at it. It's happening right now. And the only way it stops is for us to not rise up with, but rise up against. And I'm not calling for war, but we have to be strong enough to be able to protect what we love and what this country is. Well, and I, and I think people need to look long and hard at, uh, at any time, you know, we're getting ready to go to the ballots in November, go to the polls in November and, and choose politicians. Uh, and I think people need to, um, need to spend some time thinking about, well, what, what are these politicians going to do? What are they saying? Who supports them? Uh, there are plenty of, there are plenty of uh, avowed Marxist socialists that exist in our country. Who, who do they support? Who do they support as a politician? We need to be very careful of that. Now, am I saying that there, that all polit that there are certain politicians that are awesome and that we should absolutely support? No, I'm not. I think politicians should be treated like cobras. I don't think any politician has my best interest at heart. Um, and, and I think I've always said that the first, the first job of any politician is to get reelected. We, we just have to be very careful with who we give power to uh, and, and what they're going to do with that power. And when I look at Antifa, who does Antifa support? When I look at Black Lives Matter, I know they're a Marxist organization. Who do they support? Who do they support for public office? When I look at actors like Sean Penn, Sean Penn, who went and hung out with uh, Hugo Chavez, and a, a Marxist socialist. Sean Penn has been an avowed Marxist socialist for a very long time. He wants, he literally wants communism and socialism to exist in the United States. He has said so. Who does he support? Who does he want? If, if, you, if you understand what communism is, and if you understand the terrors that socialism can bring, why would you want to vote for anybody who supports, um, who supports that ideology. I don't, I don't, I, that to me that, that, that is, that is just unfathomable. Uh, I, I think there are, I think there are people that need to start to wake up and start paying attention to what politicians say and what people want. I mean, when people, when politicians say we want open borders and allow everybody in, when politicians say we want to abolish private property or when, Black Lives Matter says we want to abolish private property. You should believe them. You should take them at their word. They're saying what they want to do. Uh, but then yet, Americans will turn right around and vote for these people or vote for the, the people that these groups support. So um, I think people should just pay attention to what it means to be in a communism, in a communist state in a socialist state and you need to say, do you want that? If you want it, then vote your conscience and vote for it. I think you might be in for a very rude awakening should communism and socialism ever land square, square on the backs of us because uh, 
if you think that by voting for socialists and voting for communism is going to keep you away from the gallows or keep you away from the Kremlin gulag, you're sorely mistaken. Um, because you're, you're, you're gonna, signing yourself up. You're you're going to be there. Just you're going to be there right along next with me. You're right right next to me in the gulag. So uh, you know I don't. If you think that if you vote for these people and openly support them that they're going to be there for you, uh, you got another thing coming. People supported Lenin and Stalin, and guess what? He threw them all in the gulag as well. Anyway. <sighs> well, that was a sobering discussion. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> all right as always you can find all of our stuff at fusionunderground.net for jason Moret, i am manuel ramirez thanks for listening to the fusion underground everybody have a good Peace. night